Good afternoon, Risen Hope. How are we today? Beautiful weather. Praise God. Grateful for it. We'll give the kids a second to, to dispatch. I had a, uh, I don't usually say this stuff, but my wife's leaving so she won't hear me. I had a floral shirt on, like a Hawaiian shirt on before I came. I know this is fake spring or fake summer, but I was talked down from it because it's too early to pull the floral Hawaiian shirt. All right, let's pray and ask God uh, for help as we open the word. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your power. We need your strength to fill us right now as we look at the scriptures. Because as we press into John 6, Father, I feel very, very inadequate to describe the glories that are here to even begin. And so I know I need your help. And I know that myself and all of my friends here today and those who will watch online tomorrow will need your, your sovereign hand to work in our hearts and our minds to receive the incredible news of Jesus Christ's sufficiency in all things. Help us feel that reality as your Holy Spirit presses it into the deepest parts of our souls. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to John 6. <coughs> Excuse me. John 6, verse 1 beginning a new series today, uh, looking at this chapter, and uh, we'll be reading through this text from verse 1 all the way to 21, so a big chunk we're going to read through here, and I would ask that you bear with me, because it's windier than I thought it was going to be, and I have inadequate, I talked about inadequacy earlier, <laughs> inadequate set up here to keep the papers down, so. All right, verse 1, John 6, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. <clears throat> so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind, a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So if you recall, a few weeks ago, we were in John 5, um, and John 5 ended in Jerusalem during this, uh, the, the time of another feast. We just read about the Passover feast in chapter 6. We don't know which one of those feasts John 5 was talking about, but the events of chapter 6 could be several weeks, several months, maybe even a full year after John chapter 5. But John has so structured his biography of Jesus in such a way that, that immediately after chapter 5, we get these verses in chapter 6. And at the end of chapter 5, you may recall what Jesus said to the uh, Jewish religious leaders in, uh, in Jerusalem. He said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And this scathing, really, statement from Jesus is the last thing we hear about before chapter 6 opens, and we have this incredible event on the mountain. Jesus' point at the end of chapter 5 was that Moses, the very first writer, the very first author of the Scriptures, wrote about him. They wrote about Jesus. And if they refuse to believe Moses' writings about Jesus, it will be impossible for them to believe his words. And then we come to chapter 6 after those words, and as we track through this chapter over the next few weeks, God willing, I want those words from the end of chapter 5 to reverberate and echo in our hearts and our minds, because the author of this biography, John, clearly wants us to have them in our minds as we go through chapter 6. In fact, in many ways, chapter 6 is an explanation, an expanding of what Jesus meant when he said, Moses wrote of me. And God willing, we will see that together today and in the coming weeks. Interestingly, apart from the resurrection of Christ, uh, this is really unique about the, the event we just read, this story, this miracle of the bread feeding 5,000 is the only miracle to be recorded in all four Gospels, apart from the resurrection, which makes it very unique. But it also allows us to explore this event from several different vantage points. We have parallel accounts of this miracle, and we, we can explore them from different perspectives, each of them shining light on what happened that day. And I'm mentioning this now just to set the stage for us. In the other Gospels, it's very clear that at this point, um, John the Baptist has been uh, executed by King Herod, and Jesus' own 12 uh, disciples 
have returned from preaching the gospel throughout Israel. And these events are the events that immediately precede what we see in John 6. And um, those events are what lead us to this situation where Jesus leaves the public eye and goes out uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And yet it doesn't obviously take time, a long time for the crowds to follow him. People were seeing the signs that he was doing on the sick. Um, they were seeing all the different things that he had done to heal people, and they were compelled to follow him. And in verse 3, we read here in John 6 that Jesus ends up going up the mountain with his disciples, and he sits down. But before John unpacks this event that we just read, he does something very curious. He mentions the time of the year that it happened. Look at that, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So the Passover, this feast, is, 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 is very near. It's about to begin when this event takes place. That's the signal, that's the banner that, that John raises right at the beginning of this entire chapter. He wants us to know that Passover was approaching, this Jewish feast that celebrated when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. God was striking down their enemies by removing the firstborn from the land. Um, and John says that this feast was the one that was at hand when all of this went down. And so keep that in your mind as we move through this text. It isn't, give you a little bit of a tip off, just a chronological marker. John is doing more than that. He's intentionally mentioning this feast for a reason. You don't waste ink in the first century for chronology like this. There's a reason. And so immediately after mentioning that, John says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So that's Jesus's question to Philip. And we find out later that we're talking about 5,000 men here, uh, which is a number that the other gospels show us doesn't include women and children. They're measuring and estimating based on heads of household, these crowds of people coming towards them. And um, so there are likely thousands more. Some uh, theologians believe that there could have been upwards to 20,000 people here. So 5,000 is a modest estimate. Jesus sees these people coming toward him uh, in, in what is described as a desolate place. And according to the other gospels, Jesus has compassion on them. He wants to provide for them. And so he asks Philip, where are we going to get bread? He doesn't ask Philip where we're going to get bread because he's trying to find a way to fill an order for 5,000 different meals. John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Jesus already knows how this is going to play out. He knows how this is going to go down. This is a test. And so when I get to something like this in the text, I ask it, why? What's the purpose of this test? What is Jesus after if he already knows what he's going to do? And one thing that is helpful is going back to when we first encountered Philip in chapter one. We don't have a lot of interactions with Philip in this gospel, but the first time we meet him um, in chapter one, uh, he finds out about Jesus. He meets Jesus. He runs off to Nathaniel. We're talking about like a year and a half, two years ago. So I'm sure you guys remember it really well. Um, and when he finds Nathaniel, he says this in chapter one. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's Philip's response to Jesus when he meets him. He says, we found him. Jesus is the one who Moses wrote about. And since that moment, Philip has really been the eyewitness to miracle after miracle after miracle, sign after sign after sign, validating his statement, a statement he made about Christ before there was any signs. And so this is the test. Philip, do you believe this? Do you really believe what you said when you met me? Do you believe that I am the one that Moses wrote about? Because if I am the one, if I'm the only son from the father, which is what we saw in chapter five, then I wouldn't need to get food from anybody. I could simply provide it of my own will. That's what passing this test looks like for Philip to recognize that. But what happens? Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So mark this, that's what failing the test looks like. <laughs> um, responding in that way. And we shouldn't be too hard on Philip because the other disciples have the same hangup. And no doubt we would as well if we were there. Listen to verse eight. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so Philip is not the only one. He's not alone. What are they for so many? There are only five loaves and there are 5,000 people at least coming to us. To feed these people, Jesus, you would need to create food from nothing. And Jesus' response to this doubt is awesome. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down down. And then he proceeds to give thanks for the five loaves and the two fish. He blesses their, their meal with a prayer. What makes this prayer important, we don't know what the context and the content of the prayer was, but what makes this prayer important isn't necessarily that, or John would have recorded him. What makes this prayer important is that after it, no one would be able to tell that they only started with five loaves and two fish. No one would be able to tell that. After this, they distribute the food to 5,000 hungry mouths. And verse 11 tells us they ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12 says they had eaten their fill. That's what happened. And to make it clear, crystal clear, that this wasn't something that could simply be explained away, in collecting all that remained, there were 12 baskets filled with bread which solidifies for everyone throughout the ages of history about this event, that if that's true, after only having five loaves and two fishes, then this wasn't some kind of sleight of hand by Jesus. This wasn't some kind of clever ploy. There is a boy right now on this mountain who came to them with five loaves and two fish, and he is staring at 12 baskets filled with bread. How does that happen? What kind of man are we dealing with here? And it doesn't take long for some people to recognize the gravity of it all. And I think what we need to do when we get to a text like this sometimes is just stop and pause and try to feel it. Because we've all heard this story. Unbelievers know this story. This is a very common, very familiar story. And when it becomes familiar, it, it, it comes into danger of being domesticated by our minds and domesticated by our hearts and our affections. Think about this. Jesus created bread out of nothing. 
for 5,000 people. He didn't just heal something that was broken, which is amazing in and of itself. But when he does that, he's only mending something that already exists. 12 baskets of bread and 5,000 filled stomachs did not exist before this day. He made that happen. So this miracle that we see here vaguely reflects, vaguely echoes something in 1 Kings 17. Maybe some of you uh, recall it, uh, where Elijah helps the widow of Zarephath. Jesus actually references this in Luke, Luke 4. By miraculously, Elijah miraculously extends her flower through uh, the end of the famine. She's only got a little bit left, but it extends all the way through the, the, the famine. Jesus goes far beyond this. He, he surpasses this uh, by a great deal. This isn't simply what we see here on the mountain, a drip feed of flour over the course of several weeks or even months. 5,000 meals are produced in one hour, maybe less. Bread came into existence, not accidentally. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a random thing. It only came into existence because Jesus wanted it to come into existence. Remember verse six, Jesus knew what he would do. This wasn't a surprise to him. He wasn't hoping that this would happen. This was intentional. This was his design. And his disciples are helping him pass out this food. They're eating it. They're the ones who sat there and looked at the five loaves and the two fish and were doing the math and saying, this is not, not going to turn out the way we want it to, Jesus. They know. You can imagine that they're view of Jesus, their idea of who he is and what he's capable of is radically changing right now in this event. The crowds themselves are saying, this Jesus here isn't just a rabbi. He isn't just a healer. This is indeed, they say, the prophet who is to come into the world. And they're referring, of course, uh, we looked at this a few weeks ago, to uh, the prophet that Moses foretold of in Deuteronomy 18. We saw in the last series that uh, Moses had heard from God that he was going to raise up a prophet. Prophet, let me read it to you. God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. So that was the promise that God made to Moses about the prophet, about the, the Messiah, this ultimate, consummate, final prophet who would come into the world and would speak decisively on behalf of God, would speak ultimately on behalf of God. That's who Jesus is. And so these people are right. They're dead on. Jesus is the prophet who was to come into the world. And so what is Jesus's response to this correct assessment? I mean, this is accurate. They're right on the money. Well, verse 15 tells us what his response is. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's Jesus' response to their statement about him being the prophet, to their discovery that he's the Messiah. He withdraws. He withdraws when he hears that they're going to make him be king of Israel. When they discover that, he perceives what happens and he splits. He heads to the mountain by himself. Why does he do that? Like, why would you do that, Jesus? I mean, if you are the prophet, why leave? Well, as we've seen throughout the book of John, 
there are different kinds of, of receivings of Christ. There's different ways that we can believe in him. And there's a believing in him that isn't true, isn't real, isn't authentic. It isn't receiving him on his own terms. It's receiving him on your terms, on how you want him to be. And we see a glimpse of this here. They were going to take him by force, whether he wanted to or not. This, is, this wasn't about who Jesus really was. This wasn't about who Christ really was. This was about what Christ could give them. And this was what a, a prophet king Messiah who can heal the sick, he can create all the food he wants at will, what that kind of man could give us. That's what they're thinking. They were receiving Jesus as a means to an end without any regard. And this is the key part. Jesus is the means to an end, and he's also the end. They were receiving him without any regard for a love directed toward him. And as we go through the book of John, you're going to see this is the central defect of much of the faith that we see in the book of John. It is a false receiving. It is the main impediment to uh, the Jewish people in the first century receiving Christ. And if we doubted that this was the case, Later in this same chapter, we'll get to it in like a week or two, God willing, Jesus tells this same crowd why it is they are seeking him, why they want him to be this king. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, your pursuit of me isn't because of the signs that point to who I really am, to my glory, to my, my worth, but because you, you want somebody to give you food. You want your bellies to be filled. You want somebody to be able to do all of these things for you in your life. You want all the benefits of a prophet king, but you have no love in your heart for him, no affection for him. And that's why Jesus left in verse 15. And one question I asked when I came to this in the text was, what were the disciples thinking? What did the disciples think about this? I mean, after all, Jesus was testing them. Philip was the one on the test, but all of them were being tested by asking them, how are we going to feed these people? And the disciples' response were, well, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way we're going to feed them. And Jesus says, there is a way. Proves them completely wrong. He creates out of thin air thousands of bread and fish for these people to eat. So what did they think about that? Coming off of that event, how did the disciples come to grips with what they had just witnessed? Well, John doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us any inclination of what their response was after that test. He just continues the narrative, telling us that the disciples also left if we had been reading Matthew or Mark, we would see that it was actually Jesus that told him, them, you, gotta, you need to leave. Told them to go. He dismissed the crowds, and then he goes up to the mountain. Verse 16 tells us they actually didn't leave till evening. We don't know why. But when the night finally came, they went down to the sea. They got into their boat. And then they start across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which is on the other side of the water. And John says that when they do that, a strong wind hits their boat. The sea becomes extremely rough. If you've been on the sea or on any body of water, when uh, there's wind, you know what this feels like. You know what this looks like. 
The other gospels tell us that they were struggling to make headway. And then verse 19 in John says, when they had rode about three or four miles, that's a long way, (laughs) they saw, get this, Jesus walking on the sea and coming near their boat and they were frightened, which is exactly how you and I would respond if we saw a figure walking across the water in the middle of the night. Uh, In the other gospels, it's mentioned that they thought initially it was some kind of ghost. But John here in verse 20 tells us, but he, Jesus, said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately John says the boat was at the land that they were going. In fact, the other gospels tell us that the wind ceased the moment his foot touched the inside of that boat. Waves stopped and all of a sudden they're in calm waters, coasting right into the docks of the city of Capernaum. So think about this. Do your best when you're reading the Bible to put yourself there in the boat with these guys. They are experienced fishermen. Some of these guys are. They know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hands. They've experienced this before. This is not new to them. They can navigate it extremely well, and yet they are there for hours, struggling, struggling, struggling to get to the other side. They can't be, get beyond this wind. They can't get, into the, get beyond the waves that they're dealing with. And then comes Jesus, not in another boat. I mean, we need to let that hit us and land on us. He's not in another boat. He is walking on the water, cutting across the sea like it's solid ground. That's not normal. And that should feel very unnerving to us. But he tells them, it is I. Do not be afraid. That's what he says to them. That's his response. He doesn't say, it's me, Jesus. He actually, he actually doesn't even introduce himself in, in any way at all. By only saying, it is I. As though they would know his voice. And this phrase is really important. The Greek here is the Jewish or the Hebrew equivalent of the words, I am. Some of you know where I'm going with this already. This is the literal translation of it is I, I am. Jesus is saying, I am, don't be afraid. That's what his statement is here. And this I am statement is familiar to to us because it's exactly what God tells Moses before he sends him to rescue his people. Remember from Exodus 3, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? That's Moses's question to God before being sent to rescue the people of Israel. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people. I am sent me, sent you. So God's name is I am. In, in the Hebrew Bibles, you'll see it, uh, the base of it rooted in the word, the name Yahweh, his personal name. I am who I am. And we've said before that the divine name, the basis on which it exists is a statement of absolute reality. Absolute reality which means that God is not dependent or contingent on anything. Everything else in this world, in the universe, relies every millisecond of his existence on God. God doesn't rely on anything. Never has, never will. He has eternally existed and he simply is, period. And that's the name Jesus uses here. 
as he's walking across the water like he owns the joint. And the point, of course, is that he does. He does own the joint. He owns all of it. That's the point he's trying to make to his disciples. They don't realize that in the water, in this boat, they're still being tested. This event on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night during a windstorm is part of the test. It hasn't stopped. Who is this Jesus to these men? Like really, what do they make of him? What does it mean for him to be with them in the boat? Are they like the crowd? Do they just want to use him for their own desires? A prophet king that would serve, you know, their own impulses, their own ends. Is that how the disciples view them or did they pass this test? And John's going to unpack whether or not they passed the test over the course of chapter six. You can read ahead if you'd like to. Um, But what I want to do right now is I want to, instead of look at how they actually respond at the very end of this chapter, which is important and critical, I want to peek over their shoulders of another gospel author and get a glimpse of where they're at right now as he steps into the boat. Because I think in a lot of ways, we might be right where they're at right now as he, as he steps into that boat. So Mark 6, verses 51, 52, Mark the author talking about this same scene, says that Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And he says, they, the disciples, were utterly astounded. They were astounded at him walking on the water. They were astounded at the wind ceasing. And he explains ultimately why they were astounded. Look at this. He says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's Mark's unpacking about what is going on in the disciples' hearts. Mark was friends with Peter, got a lot of his information from Peter to write this gospel. That's who he probably asked to get this. What was going on in your heart, Peter? He's like, I didn't understand the loaves. My heart was hard. Sure, they were glad to get Jesus in the boat. They were thankful to see their Lord coming to them. But Mark says that it's more than that. It was more than that. They were astounded. The word here means to be beside oneself, to be shocked, taken aback. And the reason why, and this is a glimpse at where they're at right now with Jesus' test, is they did not understand the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. That's Mark's explanation for the disciples' shock upon seeing Jesus walk across the water. They have hard hearts. They're struggling to believe that this man could do that kind of thing. So Mark and John does the same thing. He links these two events together. They're not isolated events. The feeding of the 5,000 and the walking in the water are really the same event. They're not separate. They're woven together in the scriptures Because the disciples' response to Jesus walking on the water reflects their understanding of his feeding of the 5,000. They're connected. So if this is Mark's assessment here, what did the disciples miss? That's what I want to know. Like, why did they not understand the loaves? What did they not pull together? And this question, I believe, takes us back to the statement that Jesus made earlier at the end of John 5. Scan back to that statement. Remember, Jesus said, Moses wrote about 
me. The Old Testament scriptures, Moses being the first one to put a pen to the paper, pointed to Jesus, not just as uh, another earthly prophet or another earthly king, but as something far more than that. In other words, Jesus is far greater than Moses because Jesus offers more than Moses ever could. And all that Moses wrote about is really preparation for one man, Christ. I want to reel back the tape a little bit and think about the events we just looked at in John 6. In verse 3, Jesus goes up to the mountain, which is precisely what Moses did in Exodus 19, to meet with God on Sinai and to get the law for the people of God. And then Jesus provides bread from literally nothing for thousands of people who have been following him in a desolate place, which is exactly what God did through Moses in Exodus 16, when he caused bread to rain from heaven, manna, which we'll see in the coming weeks. And then when his disciples are being tossed by the sea in the middle of the night, and it looks like they're about to perish, Jesus walks out to them, saves them, and gets them safely to the other side. And I hope you know where I'm going with this one. Exodus 14, God parts the Red Sea by the hand of Moses and leads his people safely across the other side. All of these Old Testament pictures are embodied in this one single event, and they're embodied in Christ. Moses wrote about me. And the point isn't just that Jesus is better than Moses which itself would be staggering for a first century Jew to even consider. But that's not the main point, even if he is. The point here is that Jesus is the only person in the entire universe who can meet every single need that you and I have. That's the point. Let me say it again. The point of the loaves and of the walking on water is that Jesus alone is the provision we need, no matter what the situation is. That's the point of the bread, even 2,000 years later. The disciples were astounded because they did not understand that if Christ could make bread out of nothing, he's far more than Moses. If he could provide them with bread the way he does here, he is none other than God himself, God in the flesh. And therefore, the man they followed, this Jesus of Nazareth, could do literally anything. including walk across the sea and rescue them in the middle of the storm. <clears throat> this man they followed was the only one who could satisfy every need of their souls. And that's the lesson we're to learn from this text. So let me just pause here for a second. Consider your current situation. If you're at the end of your rope, if you're in something that feels hopeless, that it's never going to end, Christ is the only one that can provide what you need. Maybe you feel like you're in the middle of a storm and your boat's filling up and you're about to drown. I felt like that a little bit sometime this week. <laughs> um, Christ is the only one who can provide what you need. And maybe it, it, it isn't escape from the storm. Maybe it's not escape from the storm. Maybe it's simply that he steps in the boat with you and he's there as you're going through it. Because that's what you need most, not for the storm to go away, 
That's the promise of this story to all of us. Not just that Jesus can provide for us the things that we need, which he can and he will, but that he himself is our provision. John 6, the entire chapter, is a picture, a glorious picture of the infinite sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And we may feel at times that we need certain things in this world. A new job, a new home, a new diagnosis from the doctor because the last one was really bad. And those are good things to long for and good things to pray, pray for. But what we actually need most is Jesus. And God willing, we'll see that throughout chapter six, but I'm gonna give you a peek. We're gonna jump ahead to verse 35 and I just wanna read something that Jesus says to you to, to sort of get our hearts around this reality. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the point of John 6, encapsulated in one verse. That although we will experience need in this world, suffering in this world, pain in this world, if our faith is in Christ, if we're clinging to Jesus, he has promised to be with us forever and to make sure that every need is met eternally. Not a single real need will be unmet at the end of the day. And every, every tear, every single tear will be wiped away. And this may mean maybe what John was, was intending to, to mean when he mentioned Passover in verse four. Remember that? We didn't really talk about that. This feast of Passover was also in the book of Exodus, Exodus 12. And if you recall, or if you've seen Prince of Egypt, if you haven't read it, uh, this was the last meal of the people of God, Israel, before he rescues them from Egypt. It was the meal that involved a spotless lamb in unleavened bread, two foods which signify moral purity. No blemishes in the sheep, no yeast in the bread. They are symbols of perfection. And the people were commanded to eat that meal. That's what God told them to do as he passed over Egypt and destroyed all the firstborn of the people who did not eat the meal. That's where Passover comes from. That's what John's referring to. It is a provision of redemption from the hands of their slavers. And Jesus, just before Passover, does all of these different things to draw our eyes back to Moses, what he wrote in Exodus. And the reason he does that is because he's saying, listen, you need to know I am the spotless lamb. I am the unleavened bread that you've been searching for. So listen to me, what, he's, what, he's, what, what, what we need to see here about this and what we see throughout the course of the book of John is that there is no storm in our lives that can compare to the storm rightly due each one of us for how we've dishonored and disregarded God, how we've ignored him in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, there's, there's, there's nothing like that. The storm that is due us because of our sin is bigger than anything you've ever faced in your life and ever will face, period. And the sin in our own lives has created a chasm between us and God, far more than three to four miles. 
that the disciples experienced on the Sea of Galilee. And the storm headed towards us and the chasm that separates us is of such profound gravity that it will decimate us forever, eternally. And yet we here we have Christ Jesus, perfect in every way, spotless and without blemish, the all-sufficient sacrifice that absorbs this storm until it's gone, until there is no more storm for us. That's what the cross is. And the cross is this picture, this mighty picture in history that serves as the greatest evidence of Christ's sufficiency in our lives. If he paid for all of our sins, this is the whole purpose of Romans, the end of Romans 8. If he paid for all of our sins, which cost him his own life, the one who could create bread out of nothing, the one who could walk on the water, that life, then what possible storm in our lives could capsize the boat we're in right now? The answer is none. If he did that, there is none. Think about the most difficult things that you're going through right now in your life and recognize that what the, Christ, what, the, what the cross says about those things, no matter how hard they are, no matter how confusing they are, no matter how difficult they are, recognize that if you belong to Christ, if your faith is in him, he has promised to bring you all the way through. You're going to get to the other side. Just like the disciples. You're going to get to the other side. And so this test for the disciples is not just for them, it's for us. It's for the people who read scripture throughout the running ages that, that we would see Jesus not simply as a provider of food, which he is, praise be to his name, not simply as a, as a provider of safety, and he will do that. Oftentimes protecting our eternal soul before our physical body. But that we would view Jesus as the very provision himself. He embodies it. Whoever comes to him, he promises they shall not hunger. Whoever believes in him, they shall never thirst. That's his promise to us. That's his promise to you. That in him, all of our needs will be met eternally. Not a single need will go unmet, including the greatest need that you and I have, which is that his sufficiency is of such a kind, of such a na nature, of such a greatness that it would cover every sin and iniquity we've ever committed so that we can be with him forever. This is what John 6 is about. So in the next few moments, as we continue in worship um, during this next song, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. You are invited uh, to participate if your faith is in Christ Jesus. And as you do, I, I just want you to hear me out, uh, just as a plea from me. And I'm, I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> I need to hear this just as much as you. I don't know what kind of week you've had. I don't know what kind of season you are going through right now. I can imagine, given the last year, we're all at different stages of frustration and sorrow and fear. But I want you to know one thing with certainty. The solution to every need you have is ultimately Jesus. That's not sentimentality. That's not just something we hope for. 
nor is it a suggestion to sit on your hands when you can help yourself get out of the situation you're in. This is a promise from Jesus that he will be with you always and he is more than enough when he is. He is more than sufficient. So, and I'm talking to myself here, let's not respond to Jesus with a hardened heart like his disciples did here. Let's, let's, let's not fail to understand the loaves, but rather see in Christ an infinite, unwavering sufficiency to meet every single need we have, whether in this life or in the next. No matter what the diagnosis is from the doctor, no matter what the situation is that you're climbing out of, no matter how hard it is, how confused it is, know that he is there with you in it. He's with you in the boat and he will carry you all the way home. And the reason why he will carry you all the way home is this. He's already done that on the cross. He has already done on the cross. The very forgiveness we have for all of our sins purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ has proven that for his people, for those who've trusted in him, Christ's sufficiency has no end and it knows no bounds, period. That's the message of John 6. And so as we worship, let's consider this reality and embrace it with great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am grateful to be with friends today with whom I can open my soul and receive your word. And I pray that we would all do it. We know that John 6 tells us it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And I feel that. It is hard to believe these glorious spiritual realities, but they're true. They're more true than the things we can even see with our eyes. And so I'm just, I'm pleading with you, Father, for my own sake and for the sake of my friends here that we would look at your son and that we would see the all-sufficient provision of our Lord and Savior, that there is no need in our lives that Jesus doesn't meet. There is no storm that we will cross through that Jesus will not climb into our boat and say, I'm, I'm here, it's me, I am. Don't be afraid. Help us feel that in our souls, Father God. And help us receive it with great joy. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.